We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to another Sat Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn. With me in the studio this week, as usual, are Neil Bradley. Hello. Jason Martin. Hello. And Pierre Lescotron. Bonjour. Bonjour. Uh, this week, among other things, we're going to be talking about the vile, disgusting creatures that have been uh, controlling our planet and controlling the lives of the people on the planet for quite a long time now. Always known as psychopaths. Uh, specifically, we're going to touch on what we talked about last week a little bit, um, the assassination of JFK, uh, because there, was a few thing, there are a few things that we didn't talk about last week that we thought would be useful to talk about just to flesh it out a little bit more and provide some of the stranger details yeah. about the assassination. And we'll also be talking about stuff going on above our heads uh, in the skies, in the atmosphere, in space, uh, specifically comets, there's lots of them. Uh, solar flares, there's been lots of those too. Uh, and whatever else occurs to us. Because and tornadoes. And tornadoes, because as you know, if you've read the description of the show, this is an all and everything show, so it's basically whatever occurs to us, or whatever we may or may not have prepared for in advance. <laughs> we have prepared some things, but it's, other things are just going to come to us as we go along. Yeah, it's, it's also your show, so, you know. Exactly. It's your show, so if you feel inclined, call in, chat in, you know. Yeah. Crank callers are welcome. <laughs> yeah. They always spice things up a bit. But well, get we, the ball rolling. We may as well start talking about um, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which is been in our minds all week. It's only just come and gone on a Friday, as it was 50 years ago. And, of course, if you're listening to our show, well, then you already know what the mainstream media has been saying about it is a load of bullshit. And, of course, we've had a week of... They didn't just ignore it, but they had a week of basically... Muddying the waters. Ad nauseum. Yeah, they kind of give some lip service to... Oh, do you think there might have been a conspiracy? Maybe. Hmm, I'm not sure. Let's throw that one open to the public and see what they think. Hello, the public have known for a long time and have been telling everybody via your stupid mainstream media polls that 80 to 90% of them all know that Oswald didn't kill him. Because why, why do they know that? Because they, most of them have eyes. Some of them might only have one eye, but that's enough to know that Oswald did not kill Kennedy. Yeah, it's like that lady who was interviewed straight after. On the day, you know, she said, well, it's common sense. I mean, it's like his head flew back. It's common sense, you know. Yep. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, um, well, what else do you need? No, that is all you need. All, all you need to know that Oswald didn't do it, take it from there. I mean, after that, there's probably, what, there's like 800 books, I think. Is it 800 books have been written? On the JFK assassination, 
Yeah. And there's another. I think there's 12 scheduled for release before the end of this year or, or up to the 50th anniversary or 12 new books just in the next in the last month or two. So there have been 800 books written about the assassination. And most of them have questioned uh, the official story of the Warren Commission. But that doesn't matter. 800 books isn't enough. Apparently you need 8 million books to get the mainstream media to actually take it seriously, you know, mm-hmm. what people can see with their own eyes. Well, I mean, the mainstream media actively does the opposite, intentionally. I mean, it's like gaslighting. Just to jerk people's chains. Yeah. yeah, it's just like, it's basically gaslighting the people, you know, making them think that what they observe in reality isn't the truth. No, what do you mean this conspiracy? Maybe, I don't know. And among those uh, 800 or so books, there are two main categories. There are the books that blame the CIA and the military intelligence complex, like uh, James Douglas' book we mentioned uh, during the show, David Talbot, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedys, and Mark Lane, Last Woman Indictment of the CIA in the murder of JFK. And on the other side, you have the second category of books about JFK that blame Lyndon Johnson. For example, Philip Nelson, LBG, The Mastermind, James Stagg, LBG and the Kennedy Killing, etc., etc. And uh, what we found <coughs> recently is uh, a couple of articles by a French journalist, Laurent Guilleno, who tries to reconcile those two uh, approaches, saying that those two trails of investigation, if coherently connected, do complement each other, but not quite as two halves of the truth, rather as two-thirds of the truth. The remaining third piece of the puzzle is the really unspeakable. So are we going to speak about the truly unspeakable? It was the Jews! Joe. Well, that's the unspeakable. That's what he's talking about, the unspeakable. Of right. course, it, the Jews, the Jewish conspiracy, all this kind of stuff. No, well, he doesn't specifically say that. He says it was, you know, the Mossad, the Israelis were involved. Um, well, I there's scant evidence for it. But yeah. it doesn't mean they weren't involved. I think everybody wants to, like, bring Mossad into everything. I think that's part of their PR campaign in a certain sense. Mm. They do have their hands in a lot of pies, but I think that they actively want people to think they have their hands in every pie. Mm-hmm. In, fairness, gives them street in fairness to this author, he admits, I mean, he's doing an analysis of two more or less different schools, that the CIA was the mastermind and or, and or that um, Lyndon Johnson was the mastermind. And he says, okay, now the third factor, what about an Israeli role? Coming at it with the, with the perspective of 50 years of hindsight, which tells us no matter where you look, the Mossad is nearly always... So it's actually an anomaly not to have an Israeli role in this. That's where he's coming from. And I, I've got to agree with that. When you look at major events, major trends, um, the, in, not, if not the instigator, certainly the, the problem, kind of the problem, the problem is that there's just one more player exactly. that had strong motives to want to get rid of JFK. I mean, sure, throw them all together. It's just the power structure. Look at the power structure on the planet at the time, or say in the U.S. and other influences within the U.S., let's say Israel, and say, yeah, who's going to, I mean, who are you going to look to for the assassination, the assassin of the president, other than those, that power structure and those influences within the country, given who the president was and what he was doing? So, yeah, throw in the Israelis as well, and it's not unspeakable. And, I mean, the Israelis, the Israelis, yeah, okay, let's, there's some evidence that the Israelis did it, so let's go ahead and say that the Israelis had motive, and surely they had opportunity, so uh, they may have been involved. The problem is we're never going to know who pulled the trigger. We're never going to know, given the, 
the scale of the conspiracy and the number of people inv- people involved, the number of agencies involved, the number of people that had a reason to want him dead. I mean, there's probably hundreds and hundreds of people. If you include all of the people in, in the CIA, in the FBI, all of uh, John, LBJ's friends, all of the Texas oil men and the industrialists had something to lose, really, you're getting into hundreds of people there. Yeah. yeah. All of them were involved. At some level, to some extent. Well, yeah. And the guy level. who pulled the trigger, he was the least involved, essentially, in terms of, because he's just a trigger man. He's just a, the hard hit man. He, yeah. He'll shoot anybody for a few dollars, like, you know. Well, I think that, like, at that level, it's kind of like, it's kind of like belonging to the Masons in a certain sense. You have people from all different jobs, and some of them might work for the Mossad, and some of them might work for the CIA, but I think they're all part of this, this kind of club of of people that are kind of a little bit beyond nations or so I would even say the Israelis were involved as much as I would say like somebody who possibly worked at Mossad yeah, or represented, them, or represented them in this kind of like inner circle elite psychopathic we rule the world mm-hmm. you know sort of like banality gentleman club you yeah. know well this article relied on I mean he wasn't the first to bring it up he was relying on the book by Michael Collins Piper called Final, Final Judgment, Judgment. And the bulk of his research, at least in terms of, let's say, hard evidence, in quotes, is connecting, it's connected to the guy that uh, Jim Garrison tried to nail, uh, Clay Shaw, Mm -hmm. who worked or was on the board of a company that was basically a front for, not a front, I mean, it was actively an arms supplier for Israel. Well, it was also alleged to be a front for the CIA. There's no hard evidence that it was that the CIA. It okay. was said that it was a front for the CIA. You're talking about Permindex. Permindex. Permanent mean, industrial. Something. But at that level, yeah, arms trading between nations and stuff. Israel were, were up front and center on that, but so were the Americans, so were the Brits, <clears throat> so were the French. French. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't the so-called unspeakable Israel's role or not that interested me about that article. It was his suggestion that. There was a plan within a plan that day. Yeah. Which was really interesting because, I mean, there's not much evidence for it, but it does make a lot of the pieces come together. What was his theory about a plan within a plan? He said that um, the original idea was to set up a kind of false flag, a staged assassination, Mm -hmm. possibly injuring JFK, but uh, not actually killing him mm-hmm. either way, in an effort to then roll out your patsy, in this case Oswald, mm-hmm. who's been carefully sheep-dipped beforehand, mm-hmm. and then you can trace him through the Soviet and Cuban embassies and his, of course, his stay in Moscow or mm-hmm. in Russia for three years to present the backstory of, oh, the Kremlin is behind this attempt assassination of JFK, therefore JFK must... Mm-hmm. Reactivate the Cold War. Reactivate mm-hmm. the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And that at the last minute or at some point, there's another team or two of hitmen who decided, no, 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 no. They got wind of this and they said, we're going to have someone there to actually kill him. Mm-hmm. And that this was a faction led or that worked through, especially Lyndon Johnson. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. a Marlboro man. And it's, it's an interesting idea. And there are analogies where this double cross scenario is uh, comparable to a drill exercise. <coughs> Sorry, being di- diverted into a real attack like the 9/11. Well, th- mm-hmm. this is it. You see, when you look back, I mean, this is the pattern. 
that repeats. So again, it would be sort of anomalous for an operation as sophisticated as the one that took out JFK not to have some element of this. Let's look back a bit here. This is more recent history. The FBI supplied fake bombs and devised the plot to this guy, Imad Salem, in advance of the World Trade Center bombings in 1993. They, the idea was to stage him and catch him in the act, you know, an act of entrapment. And then, oh, shit, it actually blew up. What happened there? Well, we him, don't know. Give him a real bomb. Somebody yeah. gave him a real Somebody bomb. switched and gave him something real. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you look at 9-11, it looks a lot like that. Well, then exactly. we come to the Oklahoma bombing. Oh, yeah. Timothy McVeigh was given, quote-unquote, fake bombs to set him up because he was supposed to be he was an informant that he was going to trap a whole bunch of uh, militia types all in one fell swoop. It was an FBI operation from the start. Then you've got 9-11, your war games going on, simulating multiple commercial jets being hijacked simultaneously. Then you've got 7-7 in London, the Brits conducting an emergency exercise at the precise times and at the four precise locations in London where the bombs actually went off. And then you've got the Boston Marathon, well... They said a drill actually wasn't happening. They never you know, acknowledged it, but people who were there on the scene uh, said that there were sharpshooters on the roof. There were people who were, uh, police were going around with dogs, uh, sniffer dogs. People were being uh, mm-hmm. uh, patted down, I guess. And that an ex- someone came over, the, the PA, before the race started in Boston and said, oh, don't worry, it's just a drill. Coupled with the pre-announcement two hours before the actual bomb went off that the police would be conducting a controlled explosion slated for the exact location outside the public library when when it went off. Well, there's kind of two different things there. One thing is the drills that are used as a cover to uh, carry out some kind of a a real bombing. So drill involves a lot of personnel on the ground. They think they're looking for a, a kind of staged event that well there is no bomb goes off it's just training obviously and then in that confusion certain elements of the cia or fbi can go in there and drop a bomb or have someone go in and drop a bomb have patsies be around and and they're framed for it right so there's a so but they're two different things in a sense because when you're talking about the different um the way the fbi handles these terror plots uh that's the fbi directly uh, grooming uh usually uh, intellectually challenged, uh, poor, usually colored or black or, a, or you know, immigrant Americans, let's say, um, grooming them to join Al-Qaeda and then giving them a bomb and then supposedly uh, nabbing them when they push the button on the fake bomb and it's, look, okay, you're going to, you're going to prison for life because you thought that was a real bomb when you pushed the, tr- pushed the button that you thought would detonate or you made the cell phone call. Uh, and this is how we get the terrorists out of the out of society. But on various occasions, it seems that uh, that same procedure was followed. But someone gave them a real bomb, and it did actually go off. So there's a few different kind of variations of that. But the drill thing seems to be uh, a scenario that they put together where where they 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 cloak the whole thing in a drill and have a lot of people on the ground. So nobody knows who's a real cop, who's not, or who's the, who's the pretend bomber, who's, you know, and no, but nobody's expecting a bomb to go off. Um, but in the case of JFK and this theory and the assassination of JFK, it's not so much a drill going on, at least according to this guy's theory, it's not so much a drill, but that there was an, 
an act of conspiracy to stage an assassination attempt. Yes. I.e. were live rounds were fired at the president, either hitting him or missing him, a near miss or whatever, and he's injured but not killed, and therefore he's forced to backtrack on his reproachment with the Soviets, because seriously, when you have your Patsy Oswald set up in advance, and he's killed, taken out of the picture, can't actually refute any of the allegations made against him, they say Oswald was in Russia, talked to the Russians, he did it, with no evidence, but he's dead now, so you just have to accept our word for it. And um, he was, he's the one who tried to kill the president, but the president survived. And Kennedy's aware of this, the people are aware of this. Suddenly it's like, okay, you know, Jack, John, JFK, you cannot continue with this. Reasonably, you can't, be expect, you can't expect to continue with this reproachment and you know, right. peace dealing with the Russians. They just tried to kill you. And Which the people is ridiculous because they benefited from the peace dealings, right? Yeah, exactly. It's always the way they set this up. Yeah, but also the people. It was undercutting one of JFK's, perhaps his main uh, weapon against the the powers that be, the established powers that be at the time, was the will of the people. He had been he had spent his years in the White House courting the population and getting them on song and getting them behind him in terms of this kind of like world peace and you know. Let's take down the elite type thing and power to the people and let's all live in a utopia. And everybody was like, yeah, that sounds good to me. So he turns around to the, the established powers of be and says, well, listen, I know you mightn't like it, but there's kind of, you know, 80% or 90% of the population here who want this. It's not really me, you know, it's the people. And you are all here to, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to go against the little people? There'll be a revolution. You've got to do what they want, which is what he secretly wanted. So that was his weapon right. to get the people on his side. And specifically in terms of uh, uh, ending of the Cold War and hands across the water with the Russians. So the people were behind him on that. He wanted to do it. But you introduce a commie pinko sympathizer who tries to kill him, who is right. essentially directed by the Russians. That's all off. You can't do that anymore. The people themselves will be against any kind of... Uh, cuddling up to the Russians after after that is revealed. So yeah, that seems like that. that's what I can't understand. Mm-hmm. It touches on something that I can't understand is if you assume, okay, Oswald didn't do it, but Oswald was manipulated and sent to Russia and had all these contacts and had this history. He was sheep dipped. Why do we keep calling it sheep dipping? I don't know. You should call it wolf dipping. It's when they make somebody <laughs> look like a bad guy when he really isn't. Yeah, I think it's just to no. color them because they put sheeps in the... The sheep, 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 in sheep dip is when you take like a, a, a CIA spy and you make them look like an innocent person to join the thing, but they like were making him look evil. Yeah, so okay, he so was, he was wolf dip. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the, the cleaned is a CIA path. Mm. He was a, a CIA and or FBI agent and they made him look like a Russian asset or, or communist yeah. sympathizer. They give him a history. And he's obviously right. changed his profile. That history is there to be used in, in the plan to kill the, the president and blame it on Oswald. But what you see is, right, so they go to all this bother, and it was, like, he was in Russia for three years, and he, you know, he, he married someone, and then got, they, they give him a repatriation grant back into the U.S., no problem, come on back. And so there's a lot of effort put into Oswald to give him this background, give him this profile, to prepare him to be the commie sympathizer who killed the president or, shot, or tried to kill the president on the orders of the Russians. But as soon as that happens, as soon as the, the shooting 
uh, is carried out, the first thing they say is, say nothing about the Russians. This was not a Russian operation. The Russians had nothing to do with this. Do not mention this uh, like a clamp down on the press, censor. They, they simply said, no word of this gets out. They told the Warren Commission, everybody, do not mention the Russians at all. So what's the point? Yeah, that's Why very, would they do that? That's a very good point. Laurent Guillino addressed this point. He has a, an explanation about that. Is it valid or not? <clears throat> I don't know. Let's discuss it. So you have two factions. On one side, you have the CIA military and industrial complex with the plan to reactivate Cold War through a attempt to assassinate GFK. Mm-hmm. Okay. On the other side, you have Johnson, Mossad, and FBI. And their plan is to eliminate GFK. For Johnson to pursue his career and become president, for Hoover to keep on being the head of the FBI, for the Mossad to have a more pro-Israeli president. Everybody wins. So the, the assassination is conducted. The second clan really kills the president. And then comes the question of the initial scenario, the Patsy, the communist connection. And what this uh, journalist proposed is say that at this point, Johnson being president, he doesn't want anyone to talk about conspiracy. Because if there's a hint about conspiracy, since he has his finger all over the case, he might be discovered. So from the beginning of this presidency for years, he will push the long gunner envelope. He will even call the hospital where Oswald is being, uh, is having surgery and talk directly to the surgeon asking for the last bit confessions. And all along he will push this envelope. And there is also some black, black men going on, but, uh, I think I think it's different. It's, it's a good story, but I think the, the rationale is different. I think the problem is that they may be underestimated. This is, in a sense, okay, let me just backtrack a little bit just to recap what you said. So the CIA have a plan to stage an assassination or an attempted assassination against the president to get force JFK to backtrack on the Cold War reproachment and get fully on board with the let's wage the Cold War. The CIA wanted that because their main... Uh, agenda was overseas. Their main agenda was the White House and the President has to conduct and promote the right foreign policy, which will allow us to, you know, do our thing around the world in the interest of the country, in the interest of corporations, open up other other nations with the help of the U.S. military and covert ops, as Priority talks about, allow us to do that. What what we're tasked with doing essentially, which is going around the world, overthrowing governments and opening up markets for American corporations. The Cold War was needed to do that because the Cold War was a threat, the justification for the CIA being all over the world against the commie threat when in fact they were just pillaging and plundering. So that, the CIA, that fits their, their, their agenda, having the, an attempt at assassination blamed on a commie uh, agent, but they don't necessarily want to get rid of the president. Johnson and his oil men friends, and maybe the Israelis, if they were involved, not enough for them. Because simply making Kennedy wage the Cold War doesn't affect his policies, the policies that he had begun to implement domestically, which were uh, severely restrictive on Johnson and his long-term oil buddies and corporate bigwigs and stuff. He was clamping down on them. They were going to be screwed anyway, even if 
Kennedy was forced to do an about turn on the Cold War, they were still going to be screwed. So from from their point of view, if Kennedy was going to be taken care of in any way, he had it yeah. gone. Bye bye. Yeah, uh, just like to support that to take it a little bit further because <clears throat> if you think about it, like these guys get together or whatever they're planning this, and it seems like this was supposed to be an internal situation, <clears throat> and it was supposed to cultivate the Cold War, but with Kennedy actually dying. That's an act of war in, mm-hmm. in a real sense. If they killed the president, we would have, we would not have had a Cold War. We would have had a real war. Exactly. And that's what, they would have had to, and they would not have been able to back out of that. So mm-hmm. they didn't want a real war. They wanted the Cold War. That and is exactly what Johnson said to Earl Warren. The, the Supreme Court justice said, I don't want to be on the Warren Commission. He said to him, look, for God's sake, in the interest of national security, we need to cover this up. I bet right. he told him certain information that made him go, oh, I see. Right, and that's how these right. otherwise intelligent yeah. people got on board and helping to cover it up because otherwise it would have been a, a real war. war. So yeah, sure. exactly. So that's what I was saying that they underestimated right. the, the the Johnson crowd who stepped in and subverted the CIA's attempted at assassination and turned it into a real one by having someone on the grassy knoll kill Kennedy with a headshot. They maybe underestimated the right. extent of the outpouring of grief and anger from the population. That's why. I... And if they had gone ahead with the original plan, which was to blame Oswald as a commie, right. expose him as a commie agent, the people would have automatic. There would have been a, right. a, a, a groundswell of a momentum there that would have possibly led to That's a real nuclear why. war. That's precisely so, why I'm suspicious of the Mossad, because I think that they would have been more on the let's start a cold war and less on the let's just kill him type of thing. I think that that was a private Johnson hired some guy to do it he got wind of it and it was really kind of a very because it, it has all the inelegance of the kind of animal that that lyndon johnson was, mm-hmm. was very inelegant and mm-hmm. very mentally low class mm-hmm. uh, just post somebody up behind a fence and, and take a shot at him type of thing mm-hmm. and that kind of sounds very much like him and his his texas oil billionaire crew whereas mossad was probably on the side with the cia of let's fake it and it was all planned out and you know, let's get him into Russia and bring him back, and that, mm-hmm. that sounds all well planned and well oiled. And you know, here comes Johnson, just like a bull Although, in a china shop, yeah. messing everything up. Although the argument might be that, from the point of view of the Mossad, they needed, uh, in terms of what JFK was supposed, JFK was supposedly doing against them, i.e., prying into their uh, their nuclear weapons program. They would have needed him dead as well, not just the turnaround in the Cold War, because. Just turning the Cold War around would not have stopped him from maybe saying, "Okay, Israel, you still have to produce the the, the goods on 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 your nuclear, nuclear program." You know. Yeah, he was not only praying into their secret nuclear program called Dimona. There are several interesting tidbits. In May 1963, <clears throat> an inquiry was an investigation was opened by the American Zionist Council which was the ancestor of the APAC. And it was condemned for money laundering rackets, civil uh, illegal activity, and uh, Robert Kennedy ordered the American Zionist Council to register as an agent of foreign activity, mm-hmm. foreign government, subject to numerous requirements. Mm. There are other, fact- other factors as well. So, yeah, JFK being the person who he was would have not just sat around and allowed the, the Zionist lobby in the U.S. to do what it has done over the past 40 or 50 years, probably. Yeah. So another a threat in that sense. Yes, yes. So you have the, this Dimona project, nuclear project. You have the um, dismantlement of the 
Zionist lobby organs in the U.S. And you have also the, the fact that Kennedy visited in 56, 58 refugee camp in Palestine, and he was very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. And uh, he defended the right of return of the 800,000 Palestinian refugees. On November 20th, 1963, two days before his assassination, his delegation to the United Nations called for the implementation of Resolution 194 crafted for this purpose. This resolution aimed for the refugees, Palestinian refugees, to go back to the country, Palestine. There's a third factor. And the fourth factor is that Kennedy had cut down aids to Israel. Mm-hmm. And as soon as Johnson, of course, got presidency, he increased it from 40 million to 71 million and then to 130 million the following year. So there are several factors yeah. that show that, that it's not the smoking area, it shows that that must be, Kennedy was not a pro-Israeli president, obviously. But obviously somebody got paid $90 million to kill him, basically. If that's kind of what you're saying. Mossad basically won out to the tune of $90 million mm. by getting Lyndon Johnson in there. So mm. I mean, that is a good motive. That must be the only time in modern history that the U.S. administration has led the way for a U.N. Re- resolution for Israel yeah. to honor uh, the right of return for Palestinian refugees, because of course, when it comes to every single vote before and since, it's always two against the rest of the world, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's there's another piece of evidence that I think is fairly strong that supports the idea that there were two groups, that one group firing, one team organizing the firing for Texas school book depository, and then another team that the first team didn't know about was going for the for the kill, is that. When, he was, when JFK was taken, after he was shot, he was taken to a hospital in Dallas. And he was put into um, a very ornate kind of bronze uh, casket. And he was put onto the plane and flown to Washington. And when he was taken, I think it's Bethesda Hospital in Washington, Naval Hospital or something. Bethesda. In Bethesda Naval Hospital in Washington. Is that a Jewish word? Uh, I have no idea. But... Uh, I think so. <laughs> I think Cedar Sinai is. Yeah. And they uh, like a bit later. But anyway, when he arrived at the hospital in Washington, uh, the, there's guys, who, um, doctors there, who said that he arrived in a very plain casket, and uh, the way his body was uh, wrapped and was different from when he left Dallas. So in between flying from Dallas to Washington, someone took him out of the casket and uh, put him in a different one and messed around with them. And at that point, autopsy pictures were taken. And there were official autopsy pictures that were used to support the case. Uh, and, I mean, the guy, the doctors in the hospital in Dallas who saw him immediately afterwards said the top right back of his head was missing. Right? And, I mean, and these pictures have since come out because they took pictures as well. But there were official autopsy pictures that were taken and presented as this is the president's head from behind. And the back of his head is intact. Completely, and there's just a small bullet hole at the on, uh, near the crown of his head, at the hairline. Um, it's pretty obvious that someone. I don't. They say that people are saying that those photos are obviously doctored, but I think what's more likely is that it was someone else's, someone else's head. Mm-hmm. That someone who was a rough, close enough match, and they showed that as a picture to show that the bullet, that his head injury was from a bullet that entered an entry hole from at the behind. back of his head. So somebody very quickly, within, a, within 24 hours after he was shot, was immediately crapping themselves to try and cover up the fact that he was shot from the front. Now, 
who, who who had access to him at that point? I mean, it was the White House, it was it was the, it was the it was officials. I don't know who who had access to him directly, but it was going to be some element within the, the U.S. government who had access to him to do that, to fake those pictures, to try and desperately make it look like he was shot by our guys from the back type of thing. You know, the original story that they wanted to promote that it was Oswald from the Texas Book Party. They did not want it was a, it was a, a desperate attempt to cover up the fact that. Mm. There was somebody else involved. That that right. this bullet came from the front. I mean, why? If if you're if if they were the same team, why would they why would they want to do that? It doesn't matter where he was. You know, but sure. they, they weren't. Somebody wasn't on the same page in terms of. I mean, they could have easily had a conspiracy to attack Kennedy uh, and kill where he was shot from that behind and the front, but they didn't get the other guy in. Whatever. You know, it, it wasn't such a big thing to to to, to crap yourself over type thing and, and to take such extreme measures, but somebody desperately tried to cover up the fact that there was another shooter. Why? Because if the, the other shooter was, was not expected. He was not, exactly, exactly. That's the point. Right. I mean, and that, for me, that's clear evidence of there right. being two yeah. groups that were not communicating with each other. And then, um, actually, uh, it's sometimes overlooked um, part of the story is uh, Jack Rubin, Jack Rubinstein, who is the one who might make one of the clearest connection between uh, Johnson and uh, and Mossad, remember in uh, Evidence of Revision and uh, in other video footage, he declares Adlai Stevenson was vice president, there would never have been an assassination of our, of our beloved President Kennedy. He's pretty clearly pointing the finger at the other vice president, Johnson. Mm-hmm. And then, to his defense lawyer, William Kunstler, he told and repeated on several occasions, I did this in order that they wouldn't implicate Jews. And he reiterated that his motive was to protect American Jews from a program that could occur because of anger over the assassination. Hmm. So you have to wonder if Jack Rubinstein, who had very close association, as demonstrated by several evidence, with um, Israeli mafia, was he aware of Johnson's involvement, as suggested by his first statement, and was he aware of the Mossad involvement, as suggested by the second statement? Well, a theory that comes to mind is that it's entirely possible, maybe, that Mossad got prodded Lyndon Johnson to do this so that they could have something on him. And then when everything went south, they came in and said, don't worry, we'll cover your butt. And then that way they were able to maintain, because that's kind of like their MO. Their MO is about... Is about getting dirt on people. They don't really seem so often to be like out in front with the dirty work. It's more like they prod you to do something or get you into a situation where you do something, and then they quote unquote help you out of it, mm-hmm. getting some blackmail information against them. So maybe you know he got prodded to do it. He was angry, whatever, and one of them said, "Well, why don't you just hire somebody to kill him?" He does it, screws it up because the guy is a complete moron, and then the Mossad comes in and says, "Don't worry, we'll intercept the plane. We'll fake it." That was uh, straight from the ether. Uh, just uh, we just pulled that one out of the ether there. I don't know why that that, that uh, popped up, but it's very uh, very relevant. Yeah. Sunday hysteric. Well, actually, on on Jack Ruby, I mean, he did. Um, yeah. He, he said that uh, he thought when he was in jail, waiting to die from cancer, that he hadn't contracted yet, but he contracted very quickly. Uh, he said that he thought that 
the assassination of Kennedy was part of a conspiracy to blame it on the Jews, mm. which is a the problem is, strange thing for him to say yeah. at that time in that place. I'm sure there was no discussion. There's no of, was saying the J word. He said an anti. He said it was an anti-Semitic conspiracy to blame it on the Jews. I mean, it's like he just brought that one out of left field. There, no one, no yeah, one was like. No one had made any such suggestion at that no, point. No. So it's very interesting, given that we suspect, just in case people don't know this, but that Jack Ruby was uh, kind of MK Ultra right. uh, victim, if you want to call it that, uh, and that he was essentially like Sirhan Sirhan. He was mind, yeah, that was a trigger. He was mind controlled, hypnotized, whatever, to kill uh, Oswald, and it was the sound of the horn. And if you watch the documentary Evidence of Revision, which is the best documentary on the assassination of JFK, you should get it today if you haven't got it already. From Amazon. Uh, it's, um, you notice that as Oswald is being led, uh, down through the police station just before Ruby kills him a car horn beeps honks twice and I mean there's been people have said that is a kind of a trigger it has been kind of, that, that's a simple trigger I mean it's not that it's a, a ubiquitous trigger but it's something that could be used as a trigger to activate someone in that hypnotic state any noise or any signal word or a, you know some mm-hmm. some definite sound or word from someone can be installed as a trigger for these um, um, Manchurian candidate types, you know. Um, but it's very interesting because you watch the original footage and they're, you know, just like beep, beep, and then he goes, you know, uh, and shoots, uh, shoots Oswald. As Oswald is going to give his first press conference, yeah. less than 24 hours after Kennedy was assassinated, and Oswald had been interrogated for 36, of, sorry, after less than 48 hours, and he had been interrogated for 36 of those 48 hours. They're taking him out, and he was going to be confronted with the press for the first time in any real way, where he would give a speech. And he had already hinted at things, saying, I'm just a patsy, and I didn't do it, and I don't know what they're talking about, I didn't shoot anybody. He's going to elaborate on all of that. And boom, he's taken yeah. out. That, that wasn't actually Oswald's first press appearance. He had a brief one. No, but that's what I mean. I mean, yeah. in terms of he was going to have, like... A half hour, an hour to explain mm. everything. I mean, in the brief one, he, he got to say well, ten words. Something bizarre happened in that brief one. Um, at some point, um, no, forgive me, no, Oswald was not present. It was a press conference in which the, the Dallas police chief, Henry Wade, was fielding questions. At some point, a reporter asked him something, and... Um, Henry Wade was struggling to find the answer. He was like, oh, what's the name of that group? And somebody spoke up from the back of the room, and it was Jack Ruby. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah. oh, no, no, it's a fair play for Cuba committee. Yeah. He, he's getting the backstory right. And from other people who were present, they were saying he, Jack Ruby was there the whole time, alternately posing as a reporter mm-hmm. or as, in some way, a police official. Yeah, as a translator for uh, Israeli, Israeli press. Yeah, press. yeah. exactly. And... Uh, Jack Ruby was an FBI informant as well. That's officially on the record. He goes way back. Yeah, he he, he goes worked back. for Nixon in 1947. Yeah, I mean, wow. And oh, it's all that, actually, <laughs> but again, that's the, still the Mossad kind of thing of you know putting false information guys out there to be informants for them. I mean, it's something we haven't mentioned yet that links the the foreign sphere. Say that's the CIA's main base of interest with the domestic one. Is that the Kennedy brothers were going after quote-unquote organized crime. Now, yeah. that's always been understood in the U.S. to be the Sicilians. It ain't. It hasn't been. It's re- it was led at the time by Meyer Lansky. 
mm-hmm. a thoroughbred Zionist who mm-hmm. fled the U.S. later mm-hmm. on because he was wanted. Where did he go? Israel. Mm-hmm. In 1970. And just to give you an idea, because that's quite fascinating, I find this uh, struggle between those two spheres, those two clans. And uh, so this uh, French journalist describes to some extent how blackmail and double blackmail and double cross were, were going on between these two factions. And he says, well, he describes how you had two groups shooting at Kennedy, once voluntarily missing him, the other group voluntarily shooting him. So you have far many bullets, too many, far many, uh, too many, too many bullets. bullets and uh, too many uh, detonations. So they have a problem with the cover-up. And he says, uh, <clears throat> there were indeed vulnerabilities in the CIA plot and Hoover knew about them. The CIA had been overzealous in his staging of Oswald as a Cuban Soviet agent. It had manufactured evidence that Oswald had stayed in Mexico City to visit the Soviet embassy and Cuban embassy. Okay, I'll skip here. The CIA claimed to have photographed of Oswald entering the Soviet embassy and a recording of his telephone conversation with an employee at that embassy. It could have worked if Hoover and Johnson had gone along and not decided otherwise, but Hoover made sure that seven FBI agents who had interviewed Oswald on the 22nd and 23rd of November listened to the CIA recording and agreed that the voice was not Lee Harvey Oswald. Hoover had it writing down, written down in a memo. In a recently declassified recorded telephone conversation with Johnson, Hoover said that the photo was also no match that picture and the tape do not correspond to this man's voice, not to his appearance. In other words, it appears that there is a second person who was at the Soviet embassy. He added, leaving his sentence unfinished, now, if we can identify this man who was at the Soviet embassy in Mexico City, dot, dot, dot. That was, nice. that was an implicit direct threat to the CIA because an investigation on that matter would inevitably lead to the agency. Mm. That was 1961. He was allegedly... Who, uh, Oswald in Mexico City. No, allegedly, this yeah. alleged story that he... When was this? Was there, is there a date on that, what you just read, 1961? Um, no. No, it's about uh, the, the last day of uh, Oswald in 63, in September, in end 60, of September 63, no? Yeah. When, when allegedly went to Mexico okay. City, went to the embassies, yeah. and was asking, was pushing for yeah. having a passport. Apparently he was there, according to numerous witness in the party, as mentioned in evidence revision, but apparently, too, uh, yeah. someone impersonated Oswald yeah. because the plot, apparently, the idea, the plan for CIA, if they hadn't been double-crossed, was to present Oswald, that we say, as a commie agent who made pressure in Mexico embassies, Russian and uh, Cuban embassies. He put pressure on the embassy's personnel to get a passport quickly in order to exfiltrate after his uh, dirty mm-hmm. work, assassination, mm-hmm to Havana, mm-hmm. and then fly to Moscow. Mm-hmm. Right. But the uh, problem, it didn't work anymore. He was starting to talk. The official story didn't work. The, well, that's the, 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 the reason and so it. he had to be shut down. Yeah, the reason I ask about the timing is that it's probably at that late stage, May or June 2000, uh, 1963, uh, the <clears throat> Johnson and his cronies, along with Hoover and the FBI, if they were part of the the group that wanted to kill Kennedy, they would have already had their plan laid out, type of thing, and they uh, did not want him to be presented as a as a Russian agent. As a Russian agent, yeah. yeah. They, they wanted want the loan. They just wanted Kennedy out of the picture and just get the killer out of the picture and let it all 
go yeah. away. I think that there's just some evidence that this is like, again, one of those sort of like devil's bargain situations when they pull out the Manchurian candidate, because I think that's like deep conspiracy stuff. Yeah, I, 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 think, level. I think Oswald was a Manchurian candidate. Yeah, I think that's um, like deep I, level. I don't think they ever relied on him to actually do oh. what the movie told us they do, which oh. is kill the president. They relied on to just be there. And and more importantly, to act out a role beforehand right. that can be convincing. He was not supposed to shoot. I mean, he was not supposed to shoot accurately. Who? It was a, a failed attempt. Well, he couldn't. He couldn't Oswald, Oswald, wasn't, Oswald wasn't meant to be the shooter at all. He was the party. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, he, he just had to be in the building. And in both cases, he was not supposed to be a killer. For the FBI, he was not. And for the CIA, he was not either. The height, distance, objects in the way, he could never have hit with that rifle John F. Kennedy. In six seconds. He, he, he couldn't have hit him if he had infinite time. No way. A, well, no. talking about the rifle, so in evidence, the rifle changed. Well, in evidence, the reason is here that they, the witness is saying that they pulled out a Mauser, and it had, somebody said, oh, look, we found a rifle here. What does it look like to you? It looks like a Mauser to me. Oh, yeah, look, it says Mauser stamped on the barrel. There you go, Mauser. Then, uh, half an hour later, found another one. It's an Italian rifle because, <clears throat> because the ammunition that was found on the windowsill did not match a Mauser. It matched exactly. an Italian rifle. Oh, right. we have one of those too. Let me just go and get it. Uh, pull, pull out the Italian rifle. The problem with the Italian rifle is that it was rusty, had yeah. a missile end scope. They tried to shoot straight with it. Uh, the FBI right. tried to shoot straight with it afterwards dozens of times, and it would never shoot straight because it, had, it was totally screwed up. It was just an old battered rifle that would not, uh, yeah. not fire. And it took them three days. <laughs> to find Oswald's print on that rifle. One yeah. print, one smudgy print on that rifle. They found it three days later, i.e. after he was dead. Right. And uh, they were trying, trying, can't find it. No, no, no. Is he dead yet? No. Okay, now he's dead. Yep, we have his print. Here it is. And the other reason, reason for replacing the Mauser by this Carcano uh, Manlisha was that yeah. Oswald had officially bought a Manlisha Carcano. Here, I'm showing my colleagues a, a, the cover picture mm -hmm. of Life magazine with Oswald, how convenient, Oswald posing with his Manisha Carcano. That guy was such a dupe. And, so, holding, and holding a copy of a communist newspaper. Yeah, yeah you couldn't leave yeah. a Manisha uh, a, a Mauser if uh, Oswald was supposed it, to be the killer. Karl Marx's manifesto. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's, like, it's like when they find, and we found a Koran. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you know what? Found a passport. Wait, talking about the the nine le uh, in a letter saying, I the World Trade Allah. Center. Yeah. You know, sir, we were talking about mind programming Manchurian candidates. Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy, who was uh, of the same fabric yeah. as his brother, and who had the same uh, ideas concerning Israel, um, was killed allegedly by Siran Siran. Yeah. A Palestinian individual. Yeah, I mean, it's just so. Who said he killed him because? Oh no, he didn't. I mean, he he didn't remember doing it. No. But in his in his notes, supposedly, he was because of RFK's support for Palestinians that he was had a political vendetta. Against. Yeah, I mean, for me, that one has Israel written all over. Yeah, that one. I mean, when they pull that one out, who, who's, who's going to benefit here, really? Who's, who's talking about the yeah. Palestinians? In, 19, in 1968, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, that's the really were involved in that. I mean, and it kind of suggests that they were the, the movers and shakers behind it, you know, for, right. him, for him to be programmed in that way, unless, but then when you talk about Israel and the Mossad and stuff, you're talking about a lobby in the U.S., people who had been in the U.S. for quite a long time, you know, you, you, it gets a bit kind of murky there in terms of who's who well is it i mean is there a difference between the apac and the american 
Zionists and the Israeli Zionists in Israel who have lived all their lives in Israel. I mean, no. I don't know. It's not even a, about religion anymore. You have a white, Caucasian, American, Christian Zionist. Mm. They don't live in Israel. They are not even Jews. Mm. Uh, ju just one point. In 1960, a lot of um, commentators were surprised at Johnson's ch choice to be vice president because he could have been uh, the leader of the majority of the Senate, which was a more interesting position. Then a journalist asked him, in 1960, yeah, we are three years, more than three years before the, the assassination, Claire Booth Lewis asked him why he accepted a post clearly less strategic than majority leader, to which he replied, one out of every four presidents has died in office. I'm a gambling man, darling, and this is the only chance I've got. Hmm. Three yeah. years before the assassination. Bag. Yeah, I'm he not was such a filthy scum. He was, yeah. I'm not sure that he actually that was his main motivation uh, because he didn't need to be vice president to, uh, you know, to have power. He had a lot of power and a lot of control. As did his friends, you know, over and above the office of the president as it was beforehand. Uh, but if previous had, to that, but he had murder the, on his mind. Well, he was well, about to be named in the situation, huh? He was about to be named. Yeah, but he could have taken care of that without being without forcing himself onto the ticket or manipulating the situation where he was put onto the ticket with Kennedy in the first place type of thing. I mean, it seems to me that maybe that might even backtrack it to before Kennedy was elected president when Johnson got on where they said, you need to be in with this guy because we may need to do something about him type thing. You know what I mean? Of course, yeah. Johnson would have enjoyed the prestige of being president, but really it's a, it's a ceremonial position, you know? Yeah. Mm. Um, but talking about the Manchurian candidate, that movie came out in 1962, uh, the end of 1962, so it's bizarre that, because what they do is they project the truth about what's happening in the world in certain cases onto the screen to fictionalize it mm -hmm. so that afterwards when they, there's any evidence that this is actually happening in reality, people have a, a reference point. And if you bring it up and say, what, what about maturing candidates? Maybe they're real. People go, really? Yeah. That's a movie. Exactly. Movies aren't real. But they have to. Uh -huh. I think that they really, really yeah. do have to before, I mean, from some sort of cosmic universal level, that they have to tell you. They're just not obligated to tell you in a way that you'll truly believe. You can choose to believe it or not, but they have to tell you what they're going to do to you. Yeah. But I it think also, from a cosmic level, they have to do that. Yeah, and it and also serves do. that purpose though, to fictionalize it from yeah. people's minds. So you can't talk about it because people say, it's a movie, it's not real, don't be stupid. But that's their choice. Yeah. That's their choice because yeah. the truth is the truth no matter how it's presented. It doesn't matter if it's in a movie because mm. if somebody does a movie about you know, any number of things, like uh, aspirin helps you with a headache, does this suddenly become untrue because it's in a movie? There's been plenty of movies where people take aspirin. Does that mean that aspirin doesn't have any medical value? No, because it's accepted. Right. Like when, it's, when it's something that they don't want accepted as truth, when but they want to being, whitewash it in advance, you know? Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, from how people should think about that, is being in a movie does not does make not, it more yeah, or less true no. simply by virtue of being on screen. Yeah, right? absolutely. And in fact, like we're saying, it can be actually a cover-up for something that is really real. I think they, they intentionally go ahead of any leaking information because they know that all information leaks. I think that they don't try to keep things top secret. They just try to really, they just try to muddy the waters so much yeah. but that nobody will believe the truth when they hear it. But yeah. you know what the weird thing is? When you see that coincidence, you go, okay, what was going on here? Right? How did they do that? And you get to the point that, because if you look at the guy who wrote the, the book and then the guy who made the movie based on the book, right. 
there doesn't seem to be anything there. Right. Unless you uh, subscribe to the idea that the guy who made the movie The Maturing Candidate was one himself. Yeah. And was yeah. programmed to make that, right. to make that <laughs> movie. Just like, oh, oh my God, kind of it's like Russian dolls. Uh, just to give an idea of the, the pressure uh, Johnson was uh, um, submitted to just before the assassination, um, Life magazine on the 22nd of November published a, a, a headline, The Bombshell Bobby Baker Candle Grows and Grows in Washington. Bobby Baker was uh, Johnson's personal secretary. He was deep up to the, the neck in uh, uh, misconducts, radical activity. And then the chief assistant to the publishing project director of Life magazine revealed the headline for the Life magazine that was scheduled for the following week, the 29th of November. And it says about this headline, it was going to blow Johnson right out of the water. We had him. He was done. Johnson would have been finished and off the 1964 ticket and would have probably been facing prize on time. Yep. And instead of releasing this piece of information, mm -hmm. the assassination happened. Life magazine got hold of the Zapruder film for a few tens of thousands of dollars, changed the order of the picture from the film to make it look like Kennedy's head moved from the back to the front in order to uh, give some credence to the lone mm -hmm. uh, yep. shooter theory. What a change in a few days. Well, you I mean, see like, how what everything you expect from mainstream media. Of course, they changed no, it. But the but interesting it thing there is the timing. It, there was a, a meeting going on that morning in which a guy, I think it was a prosecutor from, from Texas, was meeting with Republican senators, telling them everything about the stuff Johnson was up to, and they were going to use it. They were going right. to use it against him. I mean, it's of well, course, Democrat president, the Democrat vice they were going to use it to the hilt. Yep. And they, you know, uh, the guy who, who recalled the meeting, well, I think it was a senator, I don't remember his name. Anyway, uh, he said, we're in the middle of this meeting, and the guy's telling me everything. I'm like, whoa, he's got a receipt to back up everything, all the links from Johnson to his yep. hitmen like Malcolm Wallace. Um, they were going to nail him for murder while he was vice president right. in 1961. And then he gets a call, and he's called out of the room. Uh, the news is that JFK has just been shot dead. Right. Right. And he, goes, he realized there and then, that makes Johnson president, which makes him immune. We can't do it. Right. That's how fine yeah. from his, at least I mean, just in this thread alone, the timing right. was like, you know, all these things coming together. And yeah, I think in a way that might have forced the timing. That's why it was so rushed of, of the event. Three weeks before uh, Dallas, Texas, something happened in Chicago. This came out, um, I can't remember who brought this out. I think it was in James Douglas' book. It, it was, it's known now as the Chicago plot. Yeah. It turns out that Kennedy visited, or I think it was called off, but he was due to visit. And somebody blew the whistle. Somebody who calling himself Lee. That's all. That's the only name he gave. But it resulted in the arrest of a guy named Thomas Valet. Nick Oswald 
Fale was a former Marine who was stationed at a U-2 base in Japan. <clears throat> and he was supposedly resentful towards JFK because of the Bay of Pigs disaster. And the plan was for him to be up on a building to ambush uh, JFK as he came up a, free, a freeway ramp in Chicago just three weeks before. And what I've been wondering is if... Uh, Try run. No. No, I, I thought about that, but what struck me is that CIA had this, uh, or somebody, one of the factions clearly had this... Um, had several things on the go at once. Mm. And whichever one w w would click the best, okay, now yeah. we'll, we'll go with this one. Okay, let's get the backstory set up. Yeah. Um, it turns out the, the reason why they blew the whistle on this one is because Hoover got wind of it. And he was the one who actually revealed it to someone on JFK's staff, and he ended up not going to Chicago. Mm. And I'm looking at that thinking... Holy cow, that's because Hoover knows that they want, they want to get him in Dallas. Yeah, and they want to, and they want to kill him. They don't that's want, just, they want yeah, an they attempted don't want, assassination. Exactly. Yep. No. no. They want him in Texas. And there was a one in Washington as well. The whistleblower was an ex-CIA agent. Yeah, who sent a letter to Hoover. But actually he thought he would protect the president. And actually maybe seal the fate of the president by informing Hoover of the fake assassination. So he could conduct it. Well, he was another slime ball. I mean, yeah, he was more than a slime yeah. ball. I think he was he was pure unadulterated cross-dressing evil. He survived nine presidents. Yeah. The, a forty-year career at the head of the FBI. The, the, this idea of a plot within a plot is is I think is really starting to grow on me. I mean, when you think about when you think what, what's that problem people have whenever you're talking about these things. No matter how much evidence and facts you present to them, they kind of always reach a point where emotionally they can't go there because they're starting to think of the numbers of people involved who wittingly committed murder of one of their own. You, you see that with people when it comes to 9-11 and of course in this case too. Mm -hmm. But in this case, instead of having Nixon, um, allegedly George Bush, practically half of anyone who's anyone in the U.S. present in Dallas, in Dallas that day, instead of having them there as witting accomplices or in some way, or just there to, to witness the horrific spectacle, you've got them there because they think one thing is going down right. and something else happens. Yeah. Completely and I different. Think that, I, think, I think that that brings the Mossad angle back in for... Mossad wanting to have a lot on a lot of people, maybe. Okay, but they were but before, in a conspiracy. But before we go to filling in who exactly did it, that helps people to understand how you can have a couple of key personnel, for example, in the Secret Service or the Dallas Police, calling off, ag agreeing to participate in, okay, right, a stage assassination. You can imagine if it's easier to twist their mind around to, well, we're doing this in the interest of national security. Right. But to get them on board with willingly and knowingly murdering the president that's a whole other ballgame how yeah. are you going to get a lot of people in on that mm. but if it's this other plot yeah. mm. oh that there are all kinds of types out there you can convince you know yeah. it's in our best interest and, and they'll go yeah 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 totally. well the mechanics of it then in, in terms of jfk didn't require an awful lot of people anyway well it required murders. well it required a few things i mean right. it required people in positions of power who, who could delegate and make sure certain things happened 
And then the people who just, you know, the guys who were pulled off the back of Kennedy's limo, they were just following orders. I mean, you're talking about people in, in kind of military, military or police-type organizations, and they, they're trained to follow orders, and they do what they're told. So all you need is the people at the top to, to pass down the orders and to set the scene. And then afterwards, when the narrative comes out, who did it? It's like, well, what are they going to say? What are they going to – are they going to – they're, they're also not – they're not taught to question either. So to follow, follow orders and not question. Those two things will carry a long way. You know, we're talking about Johnson accepting to be vice president and uh, this uh, journalist guy, Gieno, Laurent Gieno, gives some data about uh, why and how Johnson beca- became vice president. And he says, um, Johnson's sympathy for the Jews, whatever its origin, does not constitute evidence of his collusion with Israeli elements in Israeli assassination. Yet it is an established fact that Johnson had been the Zionist choice of Democratic candidate in the primaries. And that was not new. His campaign for Senate seat in 1948 was masterminded by Abraham Feinberg, the financial godfather of Israeli atomic bomb. It is also on record, thanks to Arthur Schlesinger, that he was in fact Philip Graham, publisher of the Washington Post, and his most influential columnist, Joseph Assop, both friends and supporters of Johnson, who convinced Kennedy to take Johnson as a, his running mate as soon as it became clear that Kennedy would be Johnson at the Democratic Convention in Los Angeles. Yeah. And then, and then he goes on, he is wondering why would the Zionists want Johnson as vice president rather than Senate majority leader, a much more efficient position to block anti-Israeli legislation? And he gave a tentative answer. It can only be because they saw the vice presidency as a step to the presidency. And the sooner the better, because the Zionists hated Kennedy as much as they loved Johnson. It says it all about the Zionists when they loved LBJ or Kennedy. There is a pretty credible Israeli source for this angle. Um, the, 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 the nuclear... The nuclear weapons whistleblower Vanunu, is that how you pronounce his name? Mordechai. Mordechai. Yeah, Vanunu. Mordechai Vanunu. He, um, yeah, he's he's spoken out a number of times on this actually, and and he gives a lot of background to just how insistent JFK was about Israel's nuclear program. You see all that focus on Iran today. That's the kind of pressure he was applying on Israel. Mm-hmm. Um. And that was, as we've already discussed, that was completely reversed after his death. And it's interesting that the only other reference I could find to this connection of, um, at least from a public figure, of JFK and Israel's nuclear, nuclear weapons was Muammar Gaddafi. As far as he was concerned, JFK was killed for this reason. Hmm. And um, the problem is people trying to put it down to one person, you know, or yeah. one, one group when there are vested interests across the board who all could have collaborated. And even as we're saying, there were conflicting <clears throat> at least two different agendas, one to uh, stage an attempted assassination and the other one to, to carry out a real assassination. Um, and there was one that was against that, which was trying to take down Johnson and get him out. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why Time Magazine was going to go with it because there were some powerful people that wanted him out and mm-hmm. 
as soon as the president was killed, they realized that the jig was up. You know, as long as Kennedy was in office, they would go with going after Johnson and this whole thing. But the minute Kennedy was dead, they basically knew which way the wind was blowing mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and went to the other side. So obviously there were, there were conflicting conspiracies. There was a conspiracy against him. We might consider it a good one, but they probably didn't. So I think this has been a great, great example of how you can have proactive conspiracy, that is psychopaths cooperating. At the same time, there's also the important element of just by their nature, their shared nature and their, their mutual interest coming together mm-hmm. of both elements. Yeah. You know? I was just overcome by <clears throat> looking at the whole scenario and looking at how it probably went down and the, the individuals involved. I'm just overcome with a feeling of disgust towards these people. Uh, the way that they just coldly and calmly would plan uh, this kind of a murder of uh, a very decent human being who wanted to just uh, promote and uh, apply uh, basic human decency to, to his job and to to society and to the world and to, to make a better society. I mean, it's not any kind of a, a grand kind of uh, plan he had to, to, to change the entire world. It were very, very simple ideals of just decency and humanity amongst amongst nations and amongst ordinary people, which everybody aspires to, and you have these disgusting, vile creatures who just, the banality of their evil, as um, Hannah Arendt described, uh, is, is just so evident, you know, um, and it's just, you're just left with a feeling of, oh my God, what... Uh, how do we get here and how do we get out of here? You know? <laughs> what planet am I on? Yeah, I mean, I just think, animals, you know. Well, there's something really untoward, in my opinion, about regicide of any kind. I really do think that it's particularly uncivilized. And I think throughout history, all of those instances really have usually been conspiracies. It's usually when the nobles, whoever they are, whatever they call themselves, they don't call those CEOs now and billionaires, but they just nobles. Whenever they, they get around to, to killing a king, they always try to make it look like, oh, he's bad, or he's a psychopath, or he's a womanizer, or he's anti-Christian. I mean, I saw on the thought page, there was like this big thing, wanted, and they were listing all these reasons why JFK was treasonous, but they were all like, he wants to make peace with the Russians, and, you know, he lied about a possible divorce. I mean, that was their big reasons for not like. I was like, really? Seriously? You guys are calling this guy, a, saying it's, he's treasonous, right? He's guilty of treason, and... He, the biggest thing you can come out with, he may have lied about a divorce. I mean, hold on a second. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Really? Are you serious? So I think that like, and, and like killing, uh, what was his name? Hussein and, and Gaddafi and all this different stuff, this pattern and like all the way back to Julius Caesar. I mean, regicide, I think is just an uncivilized practice. Yeah. But not regicide in the sense of the, the ordinary people killing their king or their leader, but elements, you know, kind of a, uh, on the same level, let's say, or, or close to the right. the king, the I think queen, or whatever, always, doing it, you know. Because like whenever whenever there's a tyrant, you know, I mean, he's always kept in place. I mean, the, the nobles love tyrants. I mean, look at like Octavianus or whatever his name was. I mean, he was he was probably one of the worst Roman tyrants ever, really. And he was just terrible, terrible. Uh, but the nobles just loved him and hated Caesar, mm-hmm. you know. 
and then throughout history, whenever you have a regicide, it's almost always, I think, the, the nobility doing it. So I think it should be looked upon as just like a very uncivilized practice. Yeah. I uncivilized think, is the word. I think, I think envy is a part of it. Just, I think it's pure hatred. Yeah. You know, JFK, at least relative to them, was whiter than white. Yeah. And there's this hatred. They, they just... Cause, but, the hatred because of his sympathy for his sympathy and empathy for the common people. They have it's, utter contempt for him they have, they have, for that. Because he's like betraying his class. Yeah. It's like a class betrayal. He, yeah. How dare he empathize with the lower animals yeah. and prefer them to us. Yeah. You know? And how dare he diss us. Because he did diss quite a lot of people. You know, yeah. Take people out of right. positions and stuff. And that's to, a, to an extreme narcissist. That's it's just so be- galling. It's my God. I, Where's the cronyism here? Yeah, I'm going to tear this guy's head off. You know, yeah. How dare he and they cloak Treat it. me in that way, you know? They cloak it in these arguments of, well, we disagree with his policies or mm, patriologies. Well, they know what they have to say to, to, to justify it to the people. I mean, there they were. They could take out JFK like that. At the same time, they've got 600 alleged assassination attempts against Castro. How do they fail so spectacularly but succeed so easily? Well, because he was useful. Yes, because he was useful because they needed communism. In terms of of the Cold War and the communist threat right on your doorstep, you're not going to get rid of that. That's a boon. You're going to use that every opportunity. I think Castro was totally 100% an asset of whatever the unspeakable conspiracy guys were talking about. Castro, his basically press secretary for a time, was a woman called June Cobb. CIA. Right. She, um, he wouldn't even have been heard uh, heard of right. in the U.S. media. This is pre or pre and during the Cuban Revolution. Her job was to take his speeches, translate them, and get them as widely published in the U.S. as possible. Right. And now, not in order to give communism or whatever brand he wasn't calling him for communists at that point, not to give him a fair hearing and his ideals. But to, to foster mm-hmm. eventually an opposition that could be used. The boogeyman. He was inflated well, up into be a boogeyman right off the shore exactly of Florida. That's exactly what I was thinking. Osama yeah. bin Castro. Yeah. Um, I mean, the extent to which they went to, uh, to this was they, they would translate books of not just Castro, but other Latin American leaders and actively put out there the other. Of course. That they could later trash through other avenues. <clears throat> But initially, you know, it was under the guise of, oh, we just want to translate your book. I think people in America this way. hear this. If, if your plans are to dominate the world via war and imperialism and conquest, and you're faced with 99 point whatever percent of the population, or maybe a bit less, who are essentially peace-loving people who just want to live their lives and don't right. really like war, what are you going to do? You're going to have to fight the war on both sides. You're going to have to create an enemy and then attack it. Emmanuel Goldstein and in 1984. Exactly. That's what they did. That's what they've done forever. The key man in, well, the key man, one of at least, the, the guy with the, at, this, at least he was the head of, of CIA, um, not covert operations, but more generally counterintelligence, James Jesus Angleton. Mm. For 20 years he was there behind the scenes. So one of his, one of the people he worked with the most was a guy who was then, it's only later emerged that he was also CIA. Jay Lovestone, real name Jacob Liebstein. He was the leader, he actually founded and was the leader of the Communist Party in the US and the AFL-CIO, the massive trade union. 
I mean, they created the formula. You know what it makes me, You know what it makes me think of? What's his name? Adam. Adam Gadan, is it? Um, the Israeli, the American, sorry, the American uh, Jew who uh, appeared for the past several years on you know Islamist websites uh, espousing global jihad until he was, well, even after he was exposed as an American Jew, he just kept doing it. Uh, I mean, how crass can you get, you know? But that flies for people, apparently, because people don't think, you know? People yeah. don't actually just... People, most people don't need their brains, you know that? Or they don't need most of their brains. No, they don't. Um, it's scientifically proven that they can, like, work with, like, yeah. 9% of their brains. I mean, their brains are meant to be used for thinking and analyzing things and deducing things from the... Uh, you know, observable data and, you know, well, figuring things out. But most people really in this world today, and I don't know what percentage it is, but it's a lot, all they need is the parts of their brains that are used to for mechanical functions, you know, um, like dressing themselves and feeding themselves, because that's all they do. Right. There's all this information about their world around them right. that they completely ignore and do not even contemplate for one second. And if you try and present it to them, They'll reject it and say, "Piss off! I'm going down to Starbucks for a coffee." Right. Well, you know, really, you're you're not using your brain. Uh, well, you don't it, it is. give it to of, someone else. They're, they're kind of like the inert mass of people in a yeah. sense. Uh, there's there's an article on this page that talks about like how poverty does that to people that they they kind of don't care and they live such a hand to mouth day to day life that really the only thing that is engaged is this just the process of surviving. You know, mm-hmm. just feeding themselves and going to work and doing all this mm-hmm. stuff, and they have no they have no real concept of the world beyond what it is they have to do today to get fed. Yeah. Sort of thing. So maybe, maybe I shouldn't be. I'm, I don't mean to be too judgmental in that sense. A little bit. You're being a little. Judgmental, I'm being a little but... judgmental, but maybe maybe to, to to backtrack on that and maybe say that maybe that's simply what people, a lot of people, uh, that's what their kind of mission in life is, and we shouldn't expect any more of them. No. But it's it's a problem when they're being used right. and manipulated right. by powers that be. Right. And the antidote to that manipulation would be the use of their, of their faculties or, or maybe developing some faculties because it's a problem for the rest of us who are seeing what's going on and see the, the cliff edge approaching and think we're being herded by all these people who just don't, don't really care and aren't interested in, in, in doing much more than just living their normal life. For me, life. the more the, the problem is like, I don't know, let's say there's like the, uh, the 70% people who are basically like that in mm. the world. You know, they are kind of really impoverished. It's, it's, it's between the 70 and the 99% of people, you know, these slightly educated, the people who have time to think, who don't, should. I get more. Yeah, you get more people. You know, like the middle class person who is a Republican and mm-hmm. like actually registered. That, that person. Because they are using their brains, but <laughs> they're using their brain really to make stupid choice. It sounds like an unsolvable problem. We discussed it previously, and obviously you have a vast majority of human beings who are born to follow. Right. It's not a bad thing. I'm, I it can be a bad it's thing. It's a bad thing in this world. It can be a bad thing if I'm the leaders sure. are bad leaders because sure. they will instead bad negative Which, values. Correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, that has been the nature of leaders for, oh, forever? This, this, I'm, I'm going there. I'm going there. The problem is that bad leaders can keep power for decades or centuries, as history shows, because they can use all the weapons, all the tools. But for a good leader first to be in power, like Caesar or JFK, and more important, to stay in power, not be assassinated. The only solution is a very strong and very good knowledge 
of pathology of what is going on in the world. Right. So basically, the key seems to stay on to be on the on the laps in the hands of those followers. But the followers want to follow them until the point where they they might make the effort to learn, to understand, to be active, to be reactive, and to stand for their rights, and to, to have a, a, a sound, positive political role, whatever leader might appear, he won't improve the situation of the planet. That's all a bit utopian, because that's not the observable yeah. fact of the planet. No, I, I don't think I'm not saying it will happen. I'm yeah. saying that it seems like an unsolvable problem. Well, and well, in a sense, by, it's by not saying, a problem to be solved. Yes, yeah. in a sense, by saying it's, it's not such a bad thing that people are authoritarians, authoritarian followers. Uh, given the world that we live in and the history of it and where we are today, it is a bad thing. <laughs> There's something well, wrong because... Here's the thing. Like, from a high level, we always say, like, the, word is, the world is very self-serving, right? We always sort of talk about that STS kind of thing, and, and that's kind of the way the world is, and the world represents that through and through. The problem is, is that everybody's, like, really miserable, and they're all suffering, and mm. like, oh, my God, why are we suffering? And we keep kind of saying, well, this is kind of what, this specific, this specific problem that we're talking about, this whole not thinking about things, this whole about the implicit agreements that you make when you believe lies, mm. and that's kind of what causes it. And then, of course, we're talking, looking at a world where it's major- the majority of people in it are ones that just kind of don't think about things, mm. and then they complain about their suffering, and then you kind of always have to be reminding them, well, you're, you're suffering because you... You don't think, I mean... But the suffering isn't bad enough, apparently, yeah. for a lot of them to really do anything about it. And well, one of the problems is, is, is once you're in the shit kind of thing, you're kind of, you, you can't adapt. get out. You, you know? kind of adapt as well, right? Yeah. People are, human beings are amazingly adaptable to yeah. pretty horrible conditions. Yeah, you look at up. China. Look yeah. at the, the Chinese conditions of people working like 13 hours a day and sleeping basically on wooden beds and, you know, eating rice in a corner and having cold showers every day and being worked as slaves and not getting any paid. Uh, any pay, right? And it's like communist Russia, you mm. see stories from there, and it's like nobody revolted, nobody mm. goes against that. I mean, people just adapt to the situation, it becomes their daily life, and they get focused on surviving and the eating shit, and that's pretty much what they do. It's, a, it's a boiling frog. It's the same in uh, yeah, Europe, it's exactly. the same in the US, you know, day after day, the rights, the advantages of citizens are getting cancelled, and your question is. And the one thing that growing people, more and more. The one thing that people need to learn is that it's easier to say no at the beginning than it is to say no at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not by complying that you will manage to have a to keep your status and your advantages. It's just whatever you do, even if you comply, if you if, even if you have the best slave, you will be exploited right. more and more and more right. because the nature of psychopathy right. is to always want more power, more suffering of other, others, and more wealth. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So even in fact, actually being a good slave makes it a little bit worse on you because people constantly want to see how far they can push you until finally they do, you know, go go too far because that's their nature. Their nature is to they don't want you to be a good slave. They want you. They want to hurt you. They want to get as much enjoyment from you as possible. So complying with them, it's like you know you always watch these movies and the guy comes up behind him and he puts a gun in his back and says, "Get in the car." So I'm like, "No, shoot me here." You know, I'm not going to make it easy for you. You're not going to, or like the guy who digs his own grave. It's like, no, you dig it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's how people, you know, I mean, that's when you get to that point, point you, you have to really kind of just say no. And it shows from this reasoning, we can see the positive side of suffering. Obviously, the only way for people to wake up is to suffer enough. Mm-hmm. And hopefully they will wake up uh, early enough. But in the second part of the show, we will see that, uh, uh, 
if people want to wake up, they have to wake up uh, quickly because uh, cosmic pressure seems to be on the increase. No, I mean... Well, that ain't going to happen. I'm sorry to have to tell everybody that ain't going to happen. There's a quote from Ponerology I'd like to, to read out here. I think it it touches on what we're talking about. So, and Andrew Lubachevsky's book, Political Ponerology, he's describing the very situations. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Amazon. He's describing the situation as it is, you know. It's, it's an excellent book. So here we go. Pathocracy survives thanks to the feeling of being threatened by the society of normal people, as well as by other countries wherein various forms of the system of normal man persist. For the rulers, staying on the top is therefore the classic problem of to be or not to be. Can such a system ever waive territorial and political expansion abroad and settle for its present possession? What would happen if such a state of affairs ensured internal peace, corresponding order, and relative prosperity within the nation? Think there of the U.S. at this point in time, 1960. It's prosperous. The 50s boom years. Could the pathocracy ruling elite there have said, you know what, it's pretty good. Well, we'll just settle for this. But Lubbock goes on. The overwhelming majority of the country's population would then make use, skillful use of all the emerging possibilities, the jobs and so on, the new technologies, taking advantage of their superior qualifications in order to fight for an ever-increasing scope of activities. So to get more of the pie for themselves, higher wages, that's what happened in the 50s. Real wages were rising in the U.S. Thanks to, thanks to their higher birth rate, their power will naturally increase. This majority will be joined by some sons from the privileged class who did not inherit pathological genes, i.e. the Kennedys. The pathocracy's dominance will weaken imperceptibly but steadily, finally leading to a situation wherein the society of normal people reaches power. This is a nightmare vision to the psychopath. When Kennedy came into power... He has Robert McNamara go to the Pentagon. And he realizes very, very quickly that the whole Cold War narrative is complete and utter horseshit. And supposedly, part of the thing they were telling senators and other, the, the lower elites at the time, was that part of the reason we, have, we need a weapons missile race with the Soviet Union is because there's a missile gap. Namely, the Russians are ahead of us or fast approaching our level of uh, our arsenals. Turns out, in 1960, the, the U.S. already had 30,000 nukes, totally dwarfing anything the USSR had, and by definition was already the world's sole superpower. There was no natural Cold War, so to speak. There was no uh, bipolar world between these two superpowers. There was only one at that point. Mm. He, JFK would have realized that quickly. Mm -hmm. um, what I think is they never really wanted a war, the military-industrial complex, with Russia. At least not in order to, you know, beat the Russians or wipe back communism. Oh, was theater. They needed at least the impression of a war in order to maintain, entrench, and cement their own control domestically. Mm -hmm. um, the rise to power of someone like JFK, in their minds, would have proved their worst fears true, that, oh my God, we're being caught up at home. The threat, that's the threat of normal man taking back control of the reins of power, precisely why they needed 
Cold War, terror, mutually assured destruction, and so on, mm-hmm. and so on. Yeah, the whole Cold War was complete, a complete sham. I mean, it's even evidenced by, by, the, um, by what Johnson said to the Warren Commission after uh, the assassination of Kennedy, where he said, we can have no talk about Khrushchev or the, uh, or the Russians, that they were involved with this in any way, because the lives of 40 million people, 40 million Americans hang in the balance. It seems that they were genuinely concerned that there was a chance that this might get out of hand and we would have horror of horrors, have an actual nuclear exchange. That's the last thing they wanted. Hang on a minute, that's just meant to be a ruse. That's meant to control the people through fear. We cannot allow that to happen ever. And the Russians were exactly the same. They understood that's what it was about. So it was a sham to keep people, to control people by fear and keep them afraid. And you notice that in 1990, when the Soviet Union fell, within a few years or even at the same time they had been preparing it, came along Islamic terrorism, exactly the same sham, exactly the same method, exactly the same purpose, and as we've seen, exactly the same result. And the absolute ridiculousness of a bunch of, and they are, I mean, just a bunch of people who are living essentially in third world, less than third world conditions often, and they're supposed to be able to just attack us at will. Just threaten the entire globe. Yeah. Threaten the entire threaten globe. Threaten our very lives, you know, our way even, of life. Even within the movies, you see them driving in these run-down ex-USSR trucks and they're mm-hmm. around the goats, but somehow the man's got a hold of, like, a nuclear weapon in his, like, goat shed. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah, so, but something I was wondering is, if the U.S. didn't gift Israel its, its nuclear program, nuclear weapons, yeah, France. Mm-hmm. Isn't that yeah. curious? Mm-hmm. Now, at the moment in the news, we've got um, these talks going on between the U.S. mainly and Iran over its nuclear nuclear energy program. They seem to have reached some agreement just today. France, funnily enough, is is involved in this and is being re- it's initially they, they were playing the the broker. But now they're the ones trying to sabotage it on Israel's behalf. Mm-hmm. And I'd just like to say I'm disgusted, totally disgusted with the French regime. Do you live in a oh, dial state like France? <sighs> it's, well, it's, what is going on here? It's total kayfabe, man. I mean, that's, theater. that's interesting, the, the, the French case currently, because there's been a, a big change in policy towards Israel. <clears throat> so basically, in France, you have a... There's a third country with the highest uh, Jewish population in France. You have about uh, 4.5 million Jewish in Israel, 4.5 million Jewish in the US, and you have almost 500,000 friends. So that's number three in the world. So you have 1% Jews in France. At the same time, you have about uh, 10% Muslims in France. And uh, Muslims are the main target of uh, Zionist policy. Um, so you have uh, a kind of uh, Israel versus Palestine redux within the French country. And at the same time, you have a, a very strong anti-Zionist pro-Palestinian tradition. Mm-hmm. I mean, until 1969 and destitution of uh, Charles de Gaulle, the president, um, France was the leader of the non-aligned country. They hadn't swallowed the the scam of the Cold War, and they were leading Egypt and India and China, uh, not China at the time, uh, 
and other non-aligned countries. It totally changed in uh, in G79 after the May 68 events led by uh, Con Bendit, a Fleming Zionist and pedophile, who managed to get the uh, gold destituted, and the president who replaced the gold was Pompidou, the ex-CEO of the Rothschild Bank, mm. and uh, a pro-Zionist who pushed France to join NATO and to follow the imperialistic uh, policy defined by Israel and, and, uh, and the U.S. So the plot assassinated uh, George Gaul. Yes, indeed. And it was uh, Clay Shaw uh, of uh, JFK assassination fame who was the only person arrested for being involved in the assassination and his association with that company Permindex, which is either a CIA and or uh, Mossad front. Uh, no way. They, he was implicated in the plot that never came to fruition to assassinate Charles Clay Shaw is a New Orleans guy, right? Yeah. Uh, New Orleans, the Corsican Mafia. I wonder where this French connection comes in. There are a few researchers that bring up the French connection in terms of the heroin trade that has been going on for even before World War II and how it ties into Israeli interests. And the mob in general, which is again not so much an Italian affair as it is a worldwide affair. It's a worldwide, yeah. Mm. Very interesting because there's something about there's a French history with is is tied up in this in so many ways. You know, the French connection of heroin fame, but the French connection is probably a term that could be applied more broadly for other things. I mean, uh, the, this guy, the, the current French. Foreign Minister Laurent Fabius, uh, basically he's, he's basically working on Netanyahu's behalf. He's Israel's spokesperson in these talks with Iran. I mean, there is a French, a, French Foreign Minister is Israel's spokesperson. Or uh, yeah, well, what, what exactly happened was that um, uh, yeah. Netanyahu got on the phone to Laurent Fabius, urg- urging him to delay the signing. Yes, because the Israelis aren't allowed, aren't part of these talks. No. So they need someone to need get them. To... Um, Fabius took the unusual step of using the French inter-radio, I'm not sure what mm-hmm. it is, to criticize the very draft agreement he had originally helped to negotiate. Um, the article I'm reading here is pretty interesting, actually. Then it goes into the history of how Israel's first nuclear reactor was built, thanks to French engineers mm-hmm. and so on. And uh, uh, where I was going to is that uh, there is currently in the French society a big divide. On one side, you have uh, all those uh, pseudo-intellectuals led by uh, Bernard Levy, you have all those uh, Zionist politicians, um, and uh, you have uh, most of the Jews population. On the side, on the other side of those people who who stick to the to goal tradition, to the pro-Palestinian position, and you have a, a huge Muslim population as well, and uh, the divide keeps increasing, and that's been illustrated by something we mentioned on Soft.net uh, several times previously. Is this Alan Sorrell and Judoni case? Yeah, apparently anti-Semitism is on the rise in France again, <laughs> again, and this is this is this. Uh, very, very funny. I find it hilarious thing that's sweeping through France at the moment. So maybe you can talk about yeah, the two characters first. Uh, we have Dieudonné and Balabala. 
a very funny humorist, smart guy, comedian. black, yeah, comedian, who is starting to take some political stances, anti-Zionist, anti-racist, anti-elite. That's a very good political stance from my point of view, but sure, it doesn't fit the agenda of the medias and the politicians. And along Dudonné, his partner somehow is a philosopher and writer, Alain Soral, who defends the same position, basically. He's against the destruction of nations by federal states. Europe is against the euro and wants France to get back its, uh, the right to coin uh, its, own its own money. He's against Zionism, his pro-Palestinian, etc., etc. And um, those two guys have been totally banished from mainstream medias. At first, the medias tried to ridiculize them by inviting them to talk shows that were set up, and we had kind of nine opponents and uh, Soral or Dieudonné alone. But they are very funny and they are smart, and they know what they're talking about. So since they couldn't uh, make them look stupid on TV, they totally banned them from TV. But since they are very popular, they have developed their own medias, and they are very popular on YouTube, they are very popular on their own websites. Soral is the is the founder of Egalité and Reconciliation, Equality and Reconciliation website, a popular political and philosophical website. And Dieudonné has his own Dieudosphere website. And then <coughs> came the story of the Quenelle. La Quenelle. Yeah. So basically this is a kind of a gesture that um, it, sort of, it sort of originally means up yours. You know when you, you get one arm and you... You uh, yeah. the, your, the your inner elbow, you know, yeah. up your... You know. yeah. Technically, the quenelle is a culinary specialty from Lyon. It's a kind of sausage, okay? And uh, sure, the, the role of the sausage is to be put up the beep of the elites. And now there are different kind of quenelle in the, this uh, humorist uh, uh, depictions. It can be a short one. So when it's short quenelle, the humorist or people who, who follow this uh, comedian stance... They, put, they show the length of the canal, you know, with the right arm showing the length along the left arm. So if you put your right hand on your left wrist, it's a short canal, about 20 centimeters. If you put your right hand on your left shoulder, it's a medium canal, about 50 centimeters. If you put your left arm on your, uh, your right arm on your left shoulder, it is a, a long canal. So this long canal gesture, move, movement, you know, your right hand on your left shoulder started to become, for some reason, quite popular. You had some people, some rugby team posing, all doing this uh, sign. Yeah. Soccer, uh, soccer teams, people scuba diving, people climbing up uh, mountains and posing, doing the same. And on the judosphere on the internet, you start to have pictures of all kinds of people, of kids, and uh, you have militaries. Yeah. Even. You have a representative of the French state starting to basically do this uh, rebellion move, you know, posture. Yeah. And most funny is the photo of all those kids gathered around this um, complete Zionist. Manuel Valls, is he, a, is he a government minister? Yeah, oh yeah, Minister of Interior is a flaming Zionist. Yeah. <laughs> Zionist. Uh, and there are all these racist. people gathered around him, and they're all beaming, smiling, and he is too. And making this gesture. funny holiday photo, and they're all making this gesture. And he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what it yeah. is. But then the media reports it as an inverted 
Hitler salute. Yeah. They're saying it's a Nazi, i.e. it's anti-Semitic. Those people are but such how pain is even in the backside. Oh, it's everything, is, break. everything make me is sick. Nazi. It's your that's, their, that's everything that they want to trash automatically becomes a, a Nazi. Yeah. How? Yeah. So this Dieudonné Sorwal uh, dynamics, and in particular this Conan movement, has taken some momentum within the French population, which is quite symptomatic of the, the current state of the French psyche. Yeah. So, well, and, um, and to an extent that Manuel Valls, the Ministry of Interior of France, during his main speech last summer, started to talk about, yeah, the threat that France is facing now that might destabilize the old republic. And you think he's going to talk about, I don't know, Ben Laden or Syria or Libya or some kind of uh, huge preferably created threat. You know, he talks about Soral and Judoli. This humorist and this philosopher. Well, the threat is what? Anti-Semitism? Or oh, just more. them? He describes them as a threat to the Republic, a threat to freedom, because, a threat to equality. Because they're making fun of politicians. Yeah. And that's actually quite telling about the, the psyche of psychopaths. Yeah. In several books, we've read yeah. that one of the things that psychopaths can tolerate the less is people mm. making fun of them yeah. and showing the truth about the, the psychopathic nature in a funny way. Well... You know, discussing all of these people, these psychopaths in power and the despicable deeds that they do and even just brushing the surface of their their depravity throughout history uh, makes me feel like my mind's been in the gutter for most of this uh, conversation. So as a remedy to that, uh, perhaps we could catapult our minds up to heavens for some inspiration, perhaps, and maybe even a solution to the kind of things that are going on on this planet. <laughs> yes. Is there something up there? Yes, br- let's look at the bright light of life, bright side of life. Very bright now. Well, in a few days' time, Comet Eisen reaches perihelion. Apelion. Perihelion. It's closest point to the sun. Okay, and you've probably heard it. People have been getting excited about it all year. What the mainstream, though, are not talking about is the fact that there are 17 comets currently visible and flaring in our skies. Comet Dyson being the biggest one, but... Indeed. 17 comets currently observable with small telescopes or binoculars or even with naked eyes. There's a case of... uh, Comet Eisen since it's been uh, increasing in magnitude. Um, actually, we can make we can attempt to make a link between three seemingly unrelated uh, phenomena: a this uh, very strong increase in comet reactivity, b the increase in solar activity, the very unexpected and unusual increase in solar activity with eight X-class solar flare over the last uh, 25 days and see some very violent weather phenomenon, uh, in particular the typhoon Haiyan. And the tornadoes. And the tornadoes of the fourth stage. In the Midwest. Yeah, in the Midwest. So what seems to happen, we are puzzled by uh, by seeing this um, increase in solar activity, because we said before, for years now, the sun has been amazingly quiet, and uh, even NASA is now announcing the quietest solar cycle for 200 years. So the sun is very quiet despite a lot of cometary activities. 
that is the main trigger for solar discharge and solar activity. So there is a paradox here. And uh, we postulated that uh, actually this quietness is due to a kind of grounding of the sun because of approaching sun's companion, namely Nemesis. However, it appears that right now, so you have two factors that pull on opposite way. You have the approaching nemesis that tends to reduce the sun's activity, but you have the increased cometary activity brought by the sun's companion, eh? the cometary swarm brought by the nemesis, that tends to increase the discharge in the activity. So it's about a balance. And recently, apparently, the cometary factor has overcome the grinding factor induced by nemesis. And uh, so that's kind of why the sun's woken up. Yes, because uh, apparently there is a lot of bodies, asteroids and comets in the solar system. Here, let's keep in mind that uh, comets are just asteroids that are in a glowing mode, that are subjected to high enough electrical stress to glow. So right now you have 17 comets visible in the solar system. So the 17 comets are actively discharging the sun. But you also have a lot of asteroids who contribute to this discharge and that are not visible. And to, to give like 17 comets, is that normal? Or yes and no. Background rate is there? You have a lot of comets because uh, most comets trajectory for Jupiter and orbit, i.e. an elliptical orbit that, follow, that circles around Jupiter and the Sun. It's a period of three to four years. And you have a lot of them. And they keep circling. And every four years, they reach the perihelion and then they appear and, and they turn and turn and turn. Something that is a bit different right now is that the two comets that exhibit the highest magnitude are namely Comet Tyson and Comet Lovejoy. Not the Lovejoy that hit the, the Sun, that went through the Sun a few years ago. Here it's Lovejoy is named after the discoverer, astronomer Lovejoy. The technical name of this comet is 2013R1. So those two comets are not following Jupiter in orbits. They are very long periods. Lovejoy period is about 10,000 years plus. And Ison period is unknown, but it's eccentricity. Its trajectory suggests that it's one journey comet. It won't come back. It's not even periodic. What does it mean? It means those two comets follow a very elongated trajectory. It means that they go through, they carry a very negative charge coming from outside the, the solar system. They go straight to the sun. So you have a very negative body that travels straight to the sun, a very positive body. So they trigger solar this, flares. Yeah, this is a kind of comet that is likely to trigger the most sun activity because of the uh, electric potential between the comet and the surrounding space. More and more positive while they get closer to the sun. So we suspect that um, the overall cometary activity, the 17 visible activity, in particular those two non-Jupiterian comets, Aizen and Lovejoy, trigger this unusual solar activity mm -hmm. illustrated by those eight X-flare um, listed between October 25th and November 19th. But just, just to give you an idea, because eight solar flares, what the eight X-class solar flares, what does it mean? For reference, over the last two years, the sun has experienced an average of 0.5 X-class solar flares a month. 
and you have eight just in 25 days, just now. Hmm. So many times the normal over the past two years. Yeah, a spike, uh, definitely a spike in solar activity. So the, the idea is that um, there's 17 comets visible in our skies and leaving aside the possibility that one of them might, you know, destroy the planet. What we can say is that because of the interaction with the sun, that they have most likely been provoking this, uh, these discharges or solar flares from, uh, from uh, in terms of solar radiation, and it's, some of it at least has been directed at the planet, and this is I don't know, causing we, uh, effects in terms of did we have bizarre like weather. A, a new superstorm and like 60 tornadoes or something? Yeah, exactly. That's what we mentioned. Landing yeah. and like yeah. saw the video on SOT where it like goes and it just yeah. blows the house away and mm-hmm. like a second the house is there. Yeah. Then uh, so that's the kind of threat in a certain sense uh, from these comets, leaving aside, as I said, the idea that they might actually destroy the planet. But uh, we can always we can we can dream. Well, hope. But, uh, Pierre, is, uh, is the comp form here? Is, is this it? Have you calculated how much time we have left? Yeah. <laughs> Five minutes, just in time for tea. Yeah, just get this information. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I I'm being confused. But I mean, 17 comets. I mean, what, 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 how often do, do they discover a new comet? Well, this is what I want to know. We're, we're getting there. Okay. Because you are guarantee of some right. in the inside the information Sorry. about what I'm supposed to reveal. Eh? Ah, uh, okay. Just, okay. Just to answer just uh, point. Uh, <coughs> the flares were not directly going to the Earth. All of them? The, uh, the eight flares, them? yeah, didn't go. They were not straight between the sun center and the planet Earth mm-hmm. because the triggers were not along this Earth line, facing. obviously. But it's not on off. It can be off by 20, 30, 40 degrees. It doesn't mean that the Earth is not affected by mm-hmm. the flare. It means it's less affected by the flare, as we're going to see later when we describe the earthly effects of those uh, spikes in solar activity. And now to... Urban needs point concerning the increase in, uh, in comets. So we have compiled today, it's a very fresh uh, data. Remember, we published um, on the uh, SOT, uh, on the Cassiopeia Forum, this data compiled from the AMS, Asteroid um, American Met- uh, Meteor Society, showing a, a strong increase in um, fireballs, observed fireballs. And now we have that we've made a very exciting activity. We went to the, all the database of the British Astronomical, Astronomical Association, BAA, and we've listed all the comets discovered between 1995 and 2013. And there are more than uh, 3,000, so it was very exciting. And what did we discover? In 1995, for example, beginning of this listing, the database doesn't go back further, one comet was discovered, namely 1995 01 Halbop. Then in 1997, you have 48. By 2000, you have 186 new comets. By 2009, you have 265. So, clearly, and the figures between 3000. So by 2009, you have 265? Yeah. You mean yeah. that there were more than... Uh, more than 2,000 discovered since 2009? No, no. Um, this database ranging from 1995 to 2013 uh-huh. lists about two or 3,000 comets 
discovered. Discover during this period of time. This could you give, okay, but you give very small numbers in the earlier years, and I'm yeah. just wondering if but then a it, larger number is big. Then, yeah, from 2000, you have 186. In 2009, picks a, two t- 2000, uh, a 265. And then the figure for 2010 to two, uh, 2013 are a bit lower because the figures are still being uh, updated. The three or four last years are being mm-hmm. updated. It keeps increasing. It will be finalized maybe, I don't know, maybe in one year. But what we can see from that is that according to a very uh, legitimate and... Uh, a respected source, the British Astronomical Association, you have a strong increase in discovered comets over the 1995-2013 period. I see. It's gone from one one new discovery in 95 to nearly 300 in recent years. Nearly. A year. Mm-hmm. It's getting busy up there. It's getting busy, and, and of course it's getting busy in terms of the results. We get fireballs all the time. I think yeah. I, would it be fair to say that's from passing through an increased quantity of debris left behind by all of these comets coming into the inner solar system? Yeah, or well, they're part of the same swarm. Because keep in mind, as I said previously, a comet is just an asteroid that is facing an electrical stress high enough to make it glow. And since the sun lately has been very quiet, the electrical activity, the electrical field within the solar system is quite is not intact, and a lot of asteroids will glow in normal solar condition are not glowing. So you have this swarm of glowing and non-glowing asteroids of dust, small asteroids of big asteroids, hence all those comets that are observed, and also all those fireballs yeah. that are observed more and more day after day. It's actually, it's actually horrible when you think about it, that you know, people are so contained and controlled and suppressed in their awareness and their consciousness. You know, people are on this planet experiencing these extreme weather events, you know, record-breaking winds and typhoons and hurricanes, bizarre outbreaks of tornadoes in places where they shouldn't be, you know, and all the other kind of climactic and, and, and earth change type events that have been going on. And nobody is paying attention, first of all, to the fact that it's strange, apparently. Certainly authorities aren't kind of hiding it very much as, uh, as being an anomalous or something that people should be concerned about. And anybody that is, i.e. the global warmists, are saying that it's all our fault. And we're just talking here about the fact that it is most likely related directly to an increase in heavenly bodies swarming around our, our solar system and, and around our planet are getting, well, you know, interacting with the solar system and our planet and causing this. And people's, people's faces are being kept shoved in the dirt and, and they're being convinced they haven't, there's a narrative, an official narrative that says this is all our fault. It's got nothing to do with what it really has to do with. Well, and it's horrible. What really galls me, though, is that people are still kind of so inured in this idea of, oh, global terrorism, that's the real threat. I mean, more people are dying every day from, from like, storms, basically. Now it's gotten to the point where people are dying from, like, serious storms and weather, starvation, all this different stuff. I mean, since, you know, 2011, you know, how many people have died from, you know, disease, want, and storms? Um, and even, apparently, some meteor strikes have t- taken a few yeah, people out as well. Lightnings. 
and, and lightning and how many people have died from that and how many people have died from some sort of terrorist attack and yeah. it's just you know i mean it's ridiculous it's it's the big threat uh, if it's, maybe it's not just the, the, maybe it's not just that it's uh, affecting climate and crazy causing crazy weather all over the planet which is taking lives and destroying people's towns and <clears throat> cities even recently in the philippines but maybe these the solar radiation caused by these heavenly bodies in, in our solar system uh, is also having an effect on <clears throat> on the people mm, yeah. directly on humanity in, in some kind of non-physical way i.e. solar radiation is a particular type of radiation and radiation of one type or another does affect human beings can be used to affect uh, human uh, well, the whole you know, brainwaves etc. comes from an observation that you know the cosmic and solar yeah. system cycles do affect people's psychology. Yeah. So what, what, yeah, so what we're, what we're seeing uh, these effects in terms of climate and crazy weather, we are also seeing effects on human beings, specifically in relation to what you just said about how many people killed by terrorists since 9-11. The official figure is 300. Now it's inflated to include as many people as possible. But, huh? Since no. 9-11. No, 300. Since 9/11, killed by terrorism. Since 9/11, oh, no, during okay. uh, 300 people. How many people were killed by policemen in the U.S. I think it's since higher 9/11? than that. Actually. Five thousand. Five thousand people were killed by police. 300 killed by terrorists. Five thousand killed by policemen since 9/11 in the last 13 years. Yeah, the by policemen. Now yeah. there's something going on there, right? Uh, and that's a terrorist? very high number as well. Yeah. Uh, that, that's an, uh, a stark increase over uh, over recent years. And again, we posit the idea that <clears throat> you got to look to the skies to, to to come up with a solution or the answer or the possible answer to, to what's going on on our planet in terms of the planet itself, the weather, the climate, and the people. And nobody cares. A tentative timeline. A tentative timeline to correlate solar activity and um, the development of this uh, exceptional typhoon Haiyan. So, <clears throat> on October 29th, you have a X 2.3 solar flare. Flare. Four days later, and keep in mind that solar winds take two to four days to travel from the sun to Earth. So, four days after the solar flare. X-class, Haiyan originates as a tropical storm. By November 5th, three days later, it's a Category 5 typhoon. On November 7th, it is still intensifying, probably strengthened by the X 3.3 flare that occurred two days before, on November 5th. On this very same day, November 7th, Haiyan reached winds 315 kilometers an hour, 196 miles per hour, where it does its landfall. A dozen decrease in intensity when it reaches land, which makes, makes it the most powerful typhoon ever recorded in written history. 315 kilometers an hour when reaching the coast, and overseas, that's the fourth fastest wind ever recorded. So that was an exceptional event. But there's nothing to see here, folks. They, uh, they recently announced that, well, recently announced, a big study was published ahead of another IPCC report that the o- planet's oceans are warming. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I initially went, yeah, right. But if you read the small print, the surface is cooling. Underneath, it's warming. It's warming from below. Hmm. Well, that's a serious problem for the 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 global kind of conveyor belt of uh, yeah. uh, of water and temperature, and it's going to result in an ice age. Yeah, it's been flipped on its head. So yeah, ice age is coming. Comets are coming. Psychos Psychos are going to get it in the neck. Six ways from Sunday. Hang on, ice age is coming. So it's going to be very cold. The comets are coming, and they they bring a lot of energy. So maybe. It will be very lukewarm in between. Yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the glass half full. Uh, well, no, I approach. Mean, the worst kind of situation is you know one of those things hitting, setting off a couple of volcanoes. You know, sky fills with ash, and then it, yeah, you know, and then you get what was cold was then suddenly going to be colder because now no sunlight's getting through. I mean, yeah. If anything, it's just going to be like a double screw job. So you have to be perfectly located between a volcano. And a, <laughs> and a iceberg and a sheet, yeah. And a, you got to pick a fireball carefully, yes. Anyway, folks, uh, we're running out of time here, um, so we're going to leave it there for this week. Um, we hope you enjoyed the show. We will be back next week with another show <coughs> at the same time on the same day of the week. Uh, we hope you can join us. So until then, have a good one. Have a good night. Goodbye. Bye bye. <laughs>